Heavenly Father, thank you again for the opportunity to be here today. And, and thank you, Lord, that uh, we have a God who loves us, who cares for us, that we put our trust in. And know that you are infinitely aware of what's going on in each of our lives, what our needs are, what our desires are, what our difficulties are. We're just so thankful that uh, we have a God who loves us. So, Lord, we ask that you'd bless the service this morning. Be with those who might be away on vacation or working, not feeling well. Pray for those that are watching on the live stream today that they would sense your presence there as well. And just meet with us today in a special way. Help us to leave this place having sensed that you have accomplished your purpose for us gathering today. In Jesus' name, amen. Colossians chapter 2, please. And verse number 10 is where we're going to begin. But I should start with our theme verse. We didn't say that today. So we'll start with that, which is Colossians 1. My goal, and this is a little bit trickier than the last theme verse, but my goal is that you'll have this pretty close to memorized by the time we get done over the next few weeks with Colossians. I do believe this is the key verse, key verses in the book of Colossians. So let's read them together. Maybe you're starting to learn it. It's going to be Colossians 1, 16 through 18. And read it with enthusiasm and gratefulness that you have the Word of God today. Let's read together Colossians chapter 1. Begin. For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. We're looking at Jesus first and how the book of Colossians teaches us that if you prioritize your life first and foremost around your relationship with Jesus, things start to fall in line. Have you noticed that? And as soon as you get those priorities out of whack, things start to unravel. And it's a sneaky thing. It's, a, it's something that comes in. They're just little distractions, and they seem innocent at first. I've seen it manifest itself in different ways. I've seen a young person, a teenager, a college student, get their first job, and I've seen that maybe sidetrack their emphasis on putting Jesus first. I've seen adults make a, go through a transition in their life, and what seems simple at first is just a little reordering. Re, it's not that Jesus isn't important, but he's not in that place of first importance. How many of you realize there's a difference between, yes, Jesus is an important part of my life, as opposed to Jesus is first. That's that idea of preeminence. In the struggle for priorities... All the eminent things, all the important things in our lives, it's so important that we're reminded and we're brought back to the fact that Jesus must come pre, before all of those things. Let's keep him there. Let's endeavor to do that. So we've been looking at both how to do that and also the benefits that come from that. So today is a very interesting passage. We're going to look at the rest of chapter 2. We'll look at chapter 2 and verses 10 through 23. And I'll introduce the topic first. The topic today is when we put Jesus first, the result is freedom in our lives. When Jesus comes first, there is freedom in our lives. The cry of our culture today is a cry for complete and utter freedom. How many of you believe it is possible to be totally and completely free? I mean, totally and completely free. Is that a thing? Is that possible? Some of you are, are like, you're like, oh, man, I feel like this is a setup question. You're just setting me up right now. You want me to raise my hand at the wrong question and be like, no, I got you. You're wrong. Well, some of you are making a face. The fact is, tr like, ultimate, complete, like, 
Like, unrestrained freedom is illusory. It's not, it's not a real thing. And we're seeing that all over. In fact, even, well, think about this. Even in, in the United States of America, which arguably is the freest system of government that has ever existed, arguably, the freest system of government that has ever been, our people and have people been totally free in America? No. Well, we've devised a system whereby which people say, well, you are free, and, and you are free so long as your freedom doesn't infringe upon the freedom of other people. That's kind of the rule that we've created. But then at the same time, who gets to decide which actions affect other people? Even the things that people say, well, how I live my life doesn't affect you at all. But then you could make the argument, well, if, an, if enough people, if enough people act that way, it totally changes the culture. And would I be affected by that? So there is no truly, there is no person who is truly and completely free to themselves. But the greatest, the greatest experience of freedom that any of us can find, the ultimate freedom that is, a, that is to be experienced in this world, is found in Jesus Christ. It is found in him. But today, people's mindset is to, to, re, to free themselves of everything, to free themselves of, of their history, to free themselves of their cultural moorings, to free themselves of their family expectations, to free themselves of their gender, to free themselves of, uh, of their sexuality. What is all of this about? All of this is about people on a search to find the personal freedom that they long for. But the result is typically to step out of one form of bondage into another form of bondage. This is the, the cycle that our culture is in. I have freed myself of the control of what I perceive to be oppressive only to find myself in a new and different kind of bondage. Now, the point of this introduction is not to address all of those cultural things. I'm not address, addressing the, those things that are happening. I'm only using it as an example to point out the restlessness that our culture and our people exhibit today, the quest for freedom. Well, this freedom is a topic, freedom in Christ is a topic that occurs all throughout the New Testament. So I want to put it in these terms. This is the last thing I'll say before we dive into the text. If you look at the opening statement and the, at the bottom of your first page here, our world's cry is this, well, I want freedom just to be who I am. I just want to be free to be who I am. Is that a Christian statement? Well, it could be. But I think the better statement is this. I want to be free to be who I was created to be. Free to be who I was created to be. Because from the scriptural framework, from the biblical framework, we have a loving, intelligent, uber-intelligent creator. Someone who designed us, someone who created us and knows infinitely more about us than we even know about ourselves. And if we would look to what he says about freedom, if we would look to who he says we are, there's a popular Christian song that's been written, I am who you say I am. I am who you say I am. I am not who I say I am. I am who God says I am. That is the most liberating statement that you can adopt for your life. I do not define my life. My friends, my family, my society doesn't define my life. Experts don't define my life. Jesus defines who I am. And if I can find who I am in him, that's when I'll experience true freedom. Well, what you're going to see, what you see in Colossians 2 is similar to what you would find if you were to study the book of Galatians. And what you find in these two places is there are outside forces that are trying to come in and pull you away from that freedom you have in Christ.
If you are a Christian today, you are designed, you are created to experience your life through your relationship with Jesus. But there are opposing forces that want to destroy your life in Christ. Paul's going to address two of them. The Holy Spirit leads him to do that in this book. So I want you to see that this morning, that ultimate freedom is found in Jesus. Now, there's three things. If you turn over, I'll just give you the whole thing right from the start, and then we'll go through it. There's three things I want you to see. First and foremost, you need, you and I need to be armed to be, to be able to fight the forces of oppression. Fight the forces of oppression. Secondly, we're going to claim the victory of the cross. And thirdly, that will free us to live our lives in Christ. Fight the forces of oppression, claim the victory of the cross, and live your life in Christ. Notice with me, we'll read starting in verse number 10. Verse number 10 is a beautiful, beautiful, powerful statement. Read verse number 10 out loud with me. Colossians 2, verse number 10, begin. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. In Jesus, you have everything that you need. This is it. If you have Christ, he is all you need. You are complete in him. Now notice what happens is we're going to see that this church was dealing with some forces of oppression that were trying to steer them away. And in fact, that's what Colossians chapter 2 is entirely about. And I'm tempted to say more, but we've got we've to move on. Look at verse number 11. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You following so far? Is it already? You starting to lose you already? Because the first time I read through this, like it's like whoa. And you're gonna see, you're gonna see this. This was a passage that for years I just would kind of just like move through. All right, let's just move through this because it's kind of difficult to understand. But there's some simple, there's some simple contextual things that I think if you can understand this morning, it opens this passage wide open. And this is one of the most transformative passages you're ever gonna read. So just stick with me. If you're like me, you're a little tired this morning. Um, I, I was camping this week and I battled mosquitoes fearlessly, the forces of oppression for the last few days. And I'm, I'm a little tired myself. So if that's like you, if I'm like you, just I promise you, if you'll stick with me through some of the, the, the heavy stuff here at the beginning, it's all going to come through at the end. So stick with me here. Verse number 12. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. I'll have you notice a few things before we continue on. You saw, you, you'll see some themes that come up. Back in the earlier verses, like verse 11, you see the idea of circumcision that is entered. You see it again in verse number 13, uncircumcision. You look in verse 14, handwriting of ordinances. You look then at 15, and this is a topic that's come up multiple times, or a word that's come up multiple times already in Colossians, principalities and powers. So all these key words that he just keeps re-emphasizing all throughout the passage. So, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Verse 16, let no man therefore judge you, Boy, that's a freeing statement right there, isn't it? Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or the new moon or the Sabbath days. Verse number 16 helps us understand the context of what Paul is talking about because this is where he gets to the action statement for the church. It's because of what I'm talking about, I don't want you to let anybody judge you about some things. I don't, want them to, I don't want you to let people judge you about what you eat or what you drink 
or about the holy days you observe or of festivals or Sabbath days. I don't want you to let people judge you. This gives us a glimpse into what the context is in this church. Verse 17, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen. So apparently, what was being promoted at this time? What was being promoted? Somebody was trying to get them all to do what? In that verse. Worship what? If you're like, everything else is a little confusing there, it should be pretty clear that, among other things, people are saying you should start worshiping angels. What's happening here is there are forces that are coming in that are taking the simple life of faith in Christ, and they are complicating it with oppressive belief systems. Let's, let's read on. Don't let somebody beguile you with voluntary humility, worshiping angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Verse 19, and not holding the head. These people, in other words, these people are not focused on the head. Who is the head? Jesus. They're concerned about all these other things, but what are they not who are they not concerned about? Jesus. From which all the body, by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom. They look impressive in will, worship, and humility, and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Let me give you a couple of statements here to understand what the church at Colossae was dealing with. There were two forces, and I put this in your notes today, there were two forces that were working against the people of God. The first one was legalism. The first one was legalism. You see that in the key words that were all throughout the passage. Circumcision, ordinances, holy day, Sabbath, eating this food, not eating that food. All of this this belief was a group of people that came in and they said, okay, it's great that you talk about Jesus, but do you remember the Old Testament law? Do you remember the Old Testament law? And their focus was trying to get New Testament Christians to live by what? The Old Testament law. And what they were trying to do was bring them into a trap that would bring them back away from Christ away from the simplicity of the gospel, and have to live their life by Old Testament ordinances and rules and laws. And what Paul is saying is, don't go back there. Don't listen to that. That is an outside force that is trying to steal you, steal away your, your um, freedom in Christ. But there was a second one, and what makes this passage a little confusing is he keeps jumping back and forth between the two. He doesn't deal with legalism and then deal with the other. He keeps repeating them. So the, on the one side was the forces of legalism. On the other side was a very popular form of spiritualism. Now, I addressed this a little bit last week. There was a movement of spiritualism that came into the early church. It was referred to as Gnosticism. You see that in your notes? Gnosticism. How many of you have ever heard the term Gnostic or Gnosticism before? Just so I, I okay. It's, it's become very popular in recent years. And in fact, you will probably encounter somebody at some point who's a critic of Christianity who will say, oh, I know you believe the Bible, but what about all those other books like the Gnostic Gospels? How many of you have had anybody say something like that to you before you've encountered that? A few of you have. Okay. So... What happens is churches used to just not talk about these things a lot. And so somebody could grow up in church 20 or 30 years and not even know that these other early writings exist. And because you had never heard about it, you're just like, I mean, the first time somebody ever approached me about that, I was like, I have no idea what you are talking about. Let's be honest. How many of you, somebody says something that to you and you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. 
Okay, I get some nods, all right? Some of you are like, yeah, I, I had no clue what that was. The real reaction when somebody says that should be this. Oh, yeah, everybody's known about the Gnostic Gospels for a long time. In fact, the early New Testament writers wrote against them. I know Seth studied this a lot, so you nodded along with that statement, so I feel good. Some of you might have studied this more than me. That I have a very basic layman's understanding of it. But the idea is this. Gnosticism was a belief that grew very early on. And as the century moved forward, these people tried to change Christianity, and they made statements like this. Well, Jesus was from heaven, but he really wasn't human. That was the belief. Jesus came from heaven, but he was just a spirit that kind of lived among people. And you say, well, why were they concerned with that? Because the word Gnostic means knowledge. And this group believed that they had special spiritual knowledge that other people didn't have. They believed that they had encounters with, ange with angelic beings. Do you remember? Worshiping angels. They believed that they received revelation from the spiritual realm. And because they had received special personal revelation, because they had received all of that, you ought to listen to them and not the apostles. Now, has that heresy completely died out? Not at all. In fact, if you have encountered Mormonism... Mormonism is, is a very similar rebrand of the Gnostic heresy, whereby somebody in the 1800s says, I know everything that you believe about the Bible, but I got a special revelation on some golden tablets. And you should listen to what I have to say on these golden tablets. You're like, what are you talking this is This is a growing movement even today. It's this belief. Why? Because it appeals to secret knowledge, secret information. It's a spiritualistic, spiritualistic religion, whereby the scripture, scriptures, is yes, informed by the Holy Spirit, but biblical Christianity is scriptural. It's word-based. It's based on God's written revelation. So this is the idea. These are the forces that are coming up against the early church. On the one side, can you imagine how confusing this would be if you're a new Christian? How confusing this is? On the one hand, you're like, yes, I found Jesus. I found forgiveness, and I know Christ. And somebody's over here like, well, that's cute, but how about all the laws? You need to follow those too. And now you're just like, oh, I don't know anything about that. Like, oh, yeah, you can't eat this food. And, oh, yeah, you can't, uh, you've got to observe all these special days. And now this guilt. You see, legalism appeals to the conscience. And it makes people feel guilty that they don't measure up and that they need to add all of these things to their lives. And it's a, it's a form of bondage. But then you, you've listened to these people. And on the other hand, on the other side, there's a group of people who says, oh, no, you don't need to listen to them. Just come on over here with us. You see, we've got like the insider information. We understand the deep spiritual things. Now, the, these forces, they come they, they, they come in different forms in different times in history. So what we, are, what we face as Christians today is not exactly, it's not exactly like what the Colossian church, but it is not unsimilar. There are forces, there are spiritual forces that come into the, the hearts and minds of Christians and try to steer them away from the simplicity of the scriptures. There's one similarity between the legalist side and the spiritualist side, the Gnostic side. And do you know what that similarity is? They both are rooted in Satan's plan. Now, did you see the words that have appeared all throughout Colossians? Principalities and powers. Principalities and powers. How many of you, don't raise your hand, but how many of you feel like you could explain to me right now what principalities and powers are? I said not to raise your hand, so I don't know why I'm looking around. But anyway, um, do you feel confident? Like, yeah, I know what that means. It's a, it's a theme in the book of Colossians. We need to make sure we understand it. Principalities and powers, it literally is referring to, hang on now, spirit beings, spirit beings, 
with authority in this world. You're like, Ethan, are you talking about demons? Yes, we're talking about demonic influences. They're referred to as demons or angels or um, different, different references. Obviously here, principalities and powers. Now, it goes against, like there are people that I would say a word like demons or the spirit realm. And they would just right now be like, oh, it's 2023. We have advanced so far. Surely you do not believe in invisible forces in the world. To which I would reply, yes, I most assuredly do. Because the scripture reveals that there is a complete unseen realm around us. But why are people afraid to talk about it? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. One reason, I think, is because it has been so sensationalized with movies and entertainment, where people think about demon-possessed people doing crazy things. Now, does the Bible record some things like that? Of course it does. In, it, but predominantly, that is not how the Bible speaks about the unseen forces of the world. Predominantly, the Bible describes them not in supernatural manifestations, but the Bible describes the spirits of the world as operating behind the scenes, affecting the hearts and minds of people. The primary place where you or I could be affected by the spiritual realm is in our thought processes, in the way we think. You see, if the devil and if the demonic world walked around with pitchforks and horns, scaring everybody half to death, would they be effective? No. It's a much cleverer force of opposition than that. You got a question? Manipulation is a very good word. It's a, it's, it is a, the, the spiritual beings who are at work. Now, in fact, Kayla, I think we have these extra scriptures that I wanted to show you so that you see that this is not just an isolated thing. This is a theme in the scriptures. Look at this, 2 Corinthians 10. Though we walk in the flesh, that means in the body, we don't war after the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. We, in other words, we don't engage in physical battles. We don't go on a crusade. But mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Verse 5. Where does this warfare take place? Well, we have to cast down our what? Imaginations. And high things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. And bring into captivity every what? Thought. Where is the battle happening? In the mind. In the spirit. There are thoughts. Not everybody. In fact, somebody asked me recently about dreams. And I thought it was a really good question. They said, what do you think about dreams? Like, I don't really know what to think about dreams. Except that if you have a dream and you feel God is speaking to you, you'd better look at the Bible to make sure it lines up with scripture. Right? Because it's not just the Holy Spirit that speaks to us, but the evil spirits speak to us as well. Now again, this, this, is very, this seems a little outlandish to modern ears. But the truth is, if we just ignore it, if we ignore it, we put ourselves at greater danger of being influenced and led astray. This is why somebody would say, well, how could Christianity be true when there are so many different expressions of Christianity. How, how many of you had somebody say that to you before? Well, how could Christianity be true if there are so many? Now, there are certain denominations that fall within biblical Christianity. There's differences of opinion, but then there are wildly different offshoots of Christianity. Well, if what the Bible says about the spiritual realm is true, then the fact that there are so many belief systems that are shoot-offs from Christianity, should that surprise us or should we expect it? We should expect it. The scriptures tell us about that. So what does this mean for us? This means for us that if we are going to continue in the faith, we need to be on guard. We need to understand. Another passage, 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 and 15. Paul talked about this a lot. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And don't be surprised. 
For Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. Not every one that claims to speak in the name of Jesus is speaking in the name of Jesus. The last one was Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against, what's the word? There it is again. Principalities. That could also be translated authorities, powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. I show you all this so that as Christians, we don't be deceived by our modern age into thinking that all of these things are just Bible stories for children. There's a, there are real forces at play, but they don't take an ugly form. They take legalistic forms, saying it's okay to follow Christ, but you need to add these other teachings of the church to your Christianity. Or they say, well, it's okay to believe in Jesus, but you shouldn't be so bound to the book. You should have a much more open mind. These are how these things are affected today. And young Christians are especially susceptible to these kinds of attacks. Just like the Bible says that we are young in the, young in the faith as babies, and then we become mature in the faith. Don't raise your hand, but would you identify yourself right now as mature in the faith or as still pretty young in the faith? If you're still pretty young in the faith, you should be especially on guard about influences and thoughts that come in. And it has nothing to do with how long you've been a Christian. It has to know with how well you know the word, how, how, how deeply you're connected with Christ. Are you mature? If you're, not, if you're not mature, that's okay. You're growing, but be on guard. Paul says, I'm concerned about the believers, and that's why I'm writing about this. So we need to fight and be aware of the forces of oppression. They only bring us into bondage. And then we claim the victory of the cross. Now that we have that understanding, verses 11 and 15 are so powerful. I love this. Look at this, 11 through 15. Look what he says. So we already saw that we're complete in him. In verse number 11, in Christ, in whom also ye are circumcised. Do you understand what he's saying? He's like, oh, these people are trying to tell you, you know, you're a Greek believer or you're a Roman believer. And it's like, well, it's great that you're a Christian, but you need to be circumcised. Paul is like, oh, yeah, well, you are circumcised. Now, not to be crude, but some of these dudes would be like, uh, no, I'm not. And he'd be like, yes, you are. But it's not a circumcision of the flesh. It's a circumcision where? In your heart. Not made with hands. This wasn't a medical procedure. This was, this was circumcision of, the, of your soul by which you now are identified with Christ. Instead of, instead of like with the Jews, physical circumcision being a sign of this, we've been given a new sign. And the new sign is what in verse number 12? What is the new sign of our union with Christ and our identity with Christ? Yeah, if you, were a, a Jew, if you were a Jewish man, you were identified as a Jew by the physical act of circumcision. But for the New Testament, it's not so. In the New Testament, we are identified with Christ by what? By baptism. And when you were baptized, you demonstrated that you were risen, you were buried by him, you were buried with him in his death, and you rose with him through faith. That baptism is now the picture you don't, Jesus says there's a better way. Paul says there's a better way. Don't be brought back into the bondage of the law. You are free in Christ by the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. Verse number 13. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together. That means he made you alive. You were dead in your sins, but now you've been made alive in Christ. And what did he do? He forgave you how many of your sins? All of them. He has forgiven every single thing. That is freedom in Christ. Not that you are perfect, but that you stand forgiven. You are forgiven in Christ. Don't let anybody tell you that you have to add works to that. Don't let anybody tell you that, yes, you are forgiven in Christ, but you have to join the church. Don't let anybody tell you, yes, you're forgiven in Christ, but you have to go through all the sacraments. Don't let anybody bring you into that trap of legalism. 
You're free in Christ. Why? Because on the cross, look what he did in verse number 14. Verse number 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way. And I love this statement. What did he do? He nailed it to the cross. He took the, you're talking about the ordinances that were against us. In other words, and, and you've got you've to understand, don't, don't misunderstand. The law is not bad, but the law was against us. The law is not bad. It's good if you can keep it, but it is against us. Because the, the, you lie and the law says what? Thou shalt not lie. You lust, and the Bible says, thou shalt not commit adultery. You disrespect your parents, and the law says, honor your father and your mother. The law is against us. The law is contrary to us. It corrects us. It corrects us. It corrects us. It's against us, against us, against us. But what could the law never do? It could never forgive us. The law can condemn us. Does that make the law bad? No. But on the cross, the power of the law died. Because when the law accuses the Christian, the response of the cross is forgiven. I am forgiven. The power of the law, the power of the ordinance died on the cross. So no longer do I live my life out of simple obedience to ordinances. Now I live my life by the law of Christ, by the power of his spirit within me. And on the cross, Jesus, it's, it's as if he took those, the, uh, our condemnation papers and he nailed it to the cross. We are set free. So what Paul does in verse 14 and 15 is he shows us how he, that Jesus defeated both of these things. Do you remember we said on the one hand is legalism and on the other hand is that Gnosticism, that spiritualism? Verse 14, which argument was put to death in verse number 14? The two arguments, there's legalism and there's spiritualism. Which one was put to death in verse number 14? Legalism died. But now look at verse number 15. You want to worship those angels? You want to worship the principalities and powers? It says here that on the cross, Jesus spoiled principalities and powers. He made a show of them openly. And then this last statement, what did he do? He triumphed over them in it. This is hard because we don't under, we can't, you can't see it. You've got to imagine it. You've got to imagine this. You've got to go to a, you've got to go to a place that your, your eye has never seen, that your mind can only imagine. That on the cross, think of this. Who is celebrating the, with the greatest celebration as Jesus bleeds and gives his life on the cross? Who is celebrating? The principalities and the powers. Go to what we see on the cross is the physical death of Christ. But there was an act of spiritual significance that was unseen to the human eye that was taking place on the cross. Jesus is on the cross and the forces of Satan are triumphing. The forces of Satan think that they have won, that they have defeated Christ, that they have taken the Son of God, who, by the way, they knew from cre creation past. The fallen angels knew who Jesus was. And they set about to defeat him, to destroy him. Why? Because they did not want you and they did not want me to be saved. And their goal is to defeat Jesus. He comes. I believe that he surprised them when he came on the scene. They used Herod, the king. I'm going to take you through a quick Bible story. They used Herod the king to try to destroy Jesus. They killed all of those innocent children just to try to stamp out Jesus. Did he die? No. They tried to use the religious leaders to stamp out Jesus. And this is where they think they've been successful. They brought Rome, the, the Jewish leaders. Even Satan came. And in the wilderness, for 40 days, Jesus was what? Tempted of the devil. Do you remember one of the temptations of the devil to Jesus? The devil said, Jesus, if you will bow down to me, I will give you what? All the kingdoms of the world. Did that ever strike you as odd? Like, how could, how could Satan give Jesus the kingdoms of the world? Because he was the ultimate principality and power. When Satan fell from heaven, he was given the dominion of the earth. 
the principalities and powers, the ruler of the air, the ruler of the world was Satan. And so he thinks, Jesus, you are now on my turf. I will destroy you. You're not giving this thing back to the Father. You're not taking your kingdom. We will win. And so on the cross, the devils, the demons, the fallen angels, they rejoice. They celebrate. He's dead. He's dead. He's dead. But on the third day, on the third day, surprise, on the third day, he made a show of them openly. Do you know what that is? A show of them. This is, this is King James English. He embarrassed them. He humiliated them. He shamed them openly. This is the scene from the Roman emperor days and the, and the ancient Eastern kings. Do you remember, do you, if you studied it in history, when a king would go in and conquer a city, what would they do to the other king who they had just defeated? Well, they would put them in a big processional, and they would walk them, and they would parade them around. Look at your mighty king. You see, that's the ancient concept here. We don't do those kind of things today. We're much more civilized. But the fact is, the greatest enemy you have, which is the devil, all of the forces that are against you and that are against me, on the cross and in his resurrection, Jesus looks at them and he says, these are your principalities. These are your powers. What power do they have now? And you say, well, that doesn't sound very Christ-like. Jesus is the king who triumphs over his enemies. He is the victorious king of kings and lord of lords. And on the cross, he made a show, an example of all the principalities and the powers. And so now, my friends, they are simply on borrowed time. Because if you read the book of the Revelation, you know that there are only a few days left for Satan to have his power. There are only a few days left for the demons and the devils to do all that they can do, but their end is sure, their end is settled. The Bible says there is a coming day when the devil and his legion will be cast into the lake of fire forever and forever and forever. So what does that mean? You're like, wow, this is like kind of like, almost feels like kind of science fiction-y to me. Well, as C.S. Lewis would say, why are we drawn to science fiction? Because there is something in our hearts that understands there are things that are unseen to our eyes, that are real to us. That we instinctively know that there is another world. And so we create it in our art, in our entertainment. We long for this other world. So what, does this, so what does that other world that is around us, what does that have to do with us today? Well, he tells us now in verse 16. He says, so, so, don't let anyone have that kind of power over you. Don't let anyone tell you how you should live your life. Submit yourself only to Jesus, only to his word. Listen, can I get real, real practical with you here? If you are struggling with feelings of, of inadequacy and insecurity, but Jesus has saved you, that is a voice of oppression from the evil one in your ears. There's a voice of the devil saying, you are unworthy, you are unloved, you can never measure up. Those people at that church, they don't love you anyway. You can't be like them. God, God doesn't love you. That is a voice of the principalities and the powers. And Jesus made a show of them openly. You'd better not be listening to them. You see, voices in our head, so to speak, they're not the, the crazy talk. What they are is feelings and impressions. There could be one that says, you know what? There could be another voice that says, hey, listen, you don't really believe the Bible. Nobody today believes that. Nobody believes in Jesus. Are, are you, sure? you know what that is? That's a voice of the enemy trying to pull you away. Hey, you, you tried this Christian thing before, but, but you're going to do it again? You're going to try again? Boy, do you have any self-respect? That is not a voice. God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. 
basically, basically, Paul says you can be set free from all of that. You don't have to listen to any of that garbage. You just get back to Jesus. You get back to his word. And you anchor your life on him. When you start to realize that all those feelings you're having are not just you, but they're the voices of the enemy, that should be a tool for you to say, wait a minute, wake up. Somebody's speaking to me right now, and it's not the Holy Spirit of God. You say, well, how do I discern, how do I discern the voice of the enemy from the voice of God? Anybody got any idea how you discern that? It's the word. It's the word. And you know that there are certain things God doesn't speak. There is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. He hasn't given us a spirit of fear. Take whatever you're feeling, take whatever you're thinking, and bring it to the Word. And you're like, but I just don't know the Word well enough. Okay, find somebody who does. Find a, a, a solid Christian and tell them, be like, hey, I'm feeling this way. Do you think that this is God speaking to me? Let's take a look at the book. Let's take a look at what God has said. Let's do war. Let's do battle against those things that would pull us away from Christ. Claim the victory of the cross and live your life in Christ. You are free from human judgment, surrendered to Jesus and dead to the powers of the world. Let's finish the passage. Look at what it says. It says, so let no man judge you in meat or drink or in respect of a holy day or the new moon or the Sabbath days. You're like, yeah, but I don't deal with all these things right now. I know. Maybe you do. Most of us don't. We have other things. The principle is the same. There are things coming in in our hearts. That, can you imagine the struggle that these people were having? Like, oh, I just, I just, I, you know, I ate that ham sandwich and they said I shouldn't and I feel really bad about that and I don't know. They're just preying on their conscience. These things, the law, the ordinances, well, I didn't keep that, that Sabbath day, and I didn't do that holiday, and I just don't know, and people are just putting all this pressure on them outside of the scripture. Paul says, listen, those things were a shadow of things to come, but the body is, what, is who? It's Christ. So in verse 18, don't let anyone beguile you of your reward. It's not just the legalist, but somebody's trying to tell you to, and they look impressive with all their humility. And the Gnostics, they would deny their bodies. They would go days without eating. And they would say, the body is bad, the spirit is good. And they just looked so impressive. They looked so impressive. And they followed the aesthetic rules where, uh, where, where they would, uh, it's all about denying the body and the spirit. And they just, they looked like these uber spiritual people. He says, you know what? Those people, they look impressive, but at the end of the verse, they are vainly puffed up, proud and full of themselves. Why? Because 19, they're all focused on what they do, and they're not holding on to the head. They're not holding on to Christ. In verse 20, wherefore, if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments, the elements, the powers of the world, why as though living in the world are you subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men. Which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. We could sum the whole chapter up in verse number 10. We did the same thing last week. Verse number 10 says this, that ye are complete in him. It's all about Jesus and his word. Live in that freedom. Running to any other thing brings you back into bondage. Jesus is all and he is in all. So, do you know Jesus? Has there been a time in your life where you have received him as your savior? Have you made that decision that Jesus is my everything? I will trust him I will, I will repent of my sins and give my life to him. That's where it starts, by putting your trust in Christ. So if you've never done that, take that simple step. There's no law, there's no ordinance, there's no spiritual experience. You simply say, yes, Jesus, I believe in you. If you've not done that, I invite you to do it right now. Just tell him, say, yes, 
I'm a sinner, I'm lost, but I believe in you as my Savior. But then, if you have done that, if you are a Christian, what influences are pulling you away from that basic foundation of Christ? Could you identify them? Is there a spirit of the world that's drawing you away? Put that to death this morning. Let's bow our heads for a time of prayer and invitation. Has there been a time in your life that you have received Christ as your Savior? If not, you say, no, you were saying that. I'm just not sure. Right now, just pray to Him. Pray something like this. Say, dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. Jesus, I believe you died and rose again for me, and I ask you to save me. I put my faith and trust in you and you alone. If you've never done that, do that right now with our heads bowed, our eyes closed. Just right now, make the decision to trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, how many Christians in here today would say, there is a voice of the, of the oppressor that has been in my ear even this week. I know it's not the voice of God. I know it doesn't line up with who God s- says that I am. But I, I've been listening to that, and it's been leading me away from Christ. If, if you'd say, yeah, that's me, Ethan, would you just take a minute right now? Just right now. Ask the Lord to set you free from that. Walk in the freedom that only comes from Christ. Let's take a few minutes and let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the victory we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that not only did he die paying the penalty for our sins, but he rose again, triumphing over sin and death. And as we've learned today, Lord, and as we were reminded today, Lord, he made a show of them openly, the principalities and the powers. We thank you for the victory that Jesus won. We thank you for the victory that he gives us. We pray, God, if someone in here doesn't know you as their Savior, that today would be the day they'd put their faith in you. Lord, for the rest of us, we pray that we would be challenged to walk in your victory each and every day, that we would rely on your Holy Spirit's guidance and leading in our life. Help us to take this word and to meditate on it throughout this week. In Jesus' name, amen. We are so glad that you've taken the time to join us today. If you've been blessed by the message, or if you have placed your faith in Jesus today, we want to hear from you. Maybe you still have questions about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Please let us know, and we would love to answer those questions from the Bible. We would also be happy to provide you with the Bible and other free Christian resources to help you grow in your faith. You can email us at info at mountgraylockbaptist.com or send us a message on Facebook. You could also call us at 413-662-2107. We would love to hear from you, and our desire is to be a blessing to you in any way that we can. God bless.